Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune, covering breaking news and current events as it pertains to Bible prophecy. In effect, chronicling the coming of Christ the King. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the End Time Tribune. This March the 11th, 2017, very, very close to Purim. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have all kinds of stuff to talk about uh, on this week's broadcast. We have the uh, Trump supporters, of course, uh, creating more clashes. Uh, the DPR declares a blockade on Kiev. Uh Trump is continuing to announce that he's going to keep his promise to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, that is right on time, right on target. If anything is going to create World War III, that would be the thing. And the news continues to spiral out of control. Consider this. Ultra-Orthodox yeshiva enrollment soars, ladies and gentlemen. They have doubled here recently. Also coming up, we have this debt ceiling to hit this year. And of course we know what POTUS is going to do. And everyone else in the government, they have no choice but to raise the debt ceiling or everything will shut down. Along those lines, what do millions of dead fish mean for our planet? It goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. Ladies and gentlemen, since when do cows get tuberculosis? Yet there's been an outbreak this very week. All over the world, we're hearing rumors that the Arab League is going to resist the U.S. Embassy's movement to Jerusalem at all costs. Ladies and gentlemen, things are really ramping up. We have all kinds of prophetic iconography. As uh, this past week, uh, the world celebrated Women's Day. To celebrate this, the United States took a statue that mimicked the golden bull outside of Wall Street and displayed a girl in a defiant posture toward the image of jealousy. Things are really starting to ramp up, ladies and gentlemen. We're headed for a crash course into something. Think about such things. We're going to roll the intro now. May they ride for Glory. Why, you're going to pull those pistols and whistle Dixie.
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune. It is good uh, to be with you tonight. Brian and I are greatly honored uh, to be here with you to share the breaking news, current events pertaining to End Time Bible prophecy. Uh, it's good to get back in the saddle after a long week of looking over the news and scratching our heads. Behind the scenes, Brian and I have been talking about developments that Brian's going to share a lot of information about tonight that just absolutely blew me away. Once again, uh, Brian gets to looking into uh, the text in question. And you've got to be careful, ladies and gentlemen, because you've got to look at the Hebrew with one eye and the Greek with the other. And it will invariably blow your mind. So, Brian, it's uh, good to be back in the saddle. we got plenty to talk about. Uh, how have you been doing today, and uh, what's the most pertinent thing on your plate that you want to talk about? Well, I've been doing all right today thus far. Pertinent thing on my plate I want to talk about? Uh, why don't you start rolling into things, and then we'll pick up with that going in. Uh, you know, folks, we've kind of given a bit of an indication that we need to keep our eyes out for the rising of that he-goat. And with developments that have been going on, you appear to be spinning in that direction. Well, Brian, it, it, it appears that everything, to me, is spinning out of direction. Um, but let's just, let's just take this from the top. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this was... Uh, published on Ynet News uh, on the 5th. Trump supporters' detractors clash on day of solidarity rallies. Supporters of Donald Trump clashed with counter-protesters at a rally in the famously left-leaning city of Berkeley, California, on the day of mostly peaceful gatherings in support of the U.S. president across the country. At a park in Berkeley across the bay from San Francisco, Protesters from both sides wearing goggles, motorcycle helmets, gas masks, or with their face half covered with bandanas, pushed each other through punches and hit each other with sticks holding their signs. Video of the scattered fight showed smoke bombs being thrown at the crowd and at least one Trump supporter pepper spraying a brawling group as police and riot gear stood at a distance. Seven people were injured in the clashes, including one who had been had teeth knocked out, but none needed or wanted to go to the hospital. Some pro-Trump crowd holding American flags faced off against black-clad opponents. An elderly Trump supporter was struck in the head and kicked on the ground. Ladies and gentlemen, Everybody that is supposed to be conservative is supposed to be on this Trump effect wave. But ladies and gentlemen, concerning the days at hand, the Lord our God is quite clear. There is going to be a rise of nationalism. And what's going to be the trump card 
to that rally is, of course, going to be civil unrest, civil war. That's what the first two writers are. Historically speaking, everyone has always known that. So, when we look over in other headlines, okay, it's not just here. This was released uh, in the independent UK 24 hours ago. One in three terror suspects in the UK, now white, amid rise in far-right extremism. Ladies and gentlemen, a record number of white people were arrested last year on suspicion of terrorism amid a rise in far-right extremism. Official statistics show that 91 of the total 260 people held on suspicion of terrorism offenses were white. A rise in 20 from 2015, and the highest number since 2003. White suspects made up 35% or 1 in 3 of all terror-related arrests in 2016, compared to 25% in 2015. Ladies and gentlemen, this, these hoofbeats can be heard around the world. RT News. Dutch embassy and consulate in Turkey closed off as diplomatic row escalates. The Dutch embassy and consulate in Turkey have been closed off for security reasons. Reuters reported citing Turkish foreign ministry. A mass rally took place outside the consulate in Istanbul after Turkish foreign minister was refused landing in the Netherlands. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Why on earth would you schedule a meeting and then when the said foreign minister goes to approach and land to the S at the airport, you refuse him permission to land? Oh, ladies and gentlemen. These hoofbeats are beginning to reverberate everywhere. Everywhere. Let's, let's talk about this one. We have major things uh, going on. We're active in so many different uh, places, militarily speaking. It's off the chart. But... Uh, the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic in the Ukraine region of Donbas has declared a trade blockade on Kiev in response to a previously imposed economic blockade on part of the Ukraine. So, ladies and gentlemen, you talk about nations, tribes, and tongues – that's exactly what we have going on here. You have to understand that this blockade has been implemented on an area of the same place as the tribes begin to separate and balkanize themselves. 
This is extremely ominous. Now, on to more live and local and late-breaking news, I guess I should call it. This straight out of the Times of Israel. Assad. U.S. forces in Syria are invaders. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the only thing I have to say to that is, do you think... Ladies and gentlemen, do you not know the rules of engagement for your own constitution? American forces are not allowed to invade a foreign government soil. They're not. Not under any circumstances. This is an outright act of war. That's what we're doing. We have invaded Syria. Syrian President Bashar Assad on Saturday commented on U.S. troops who recently arrived in northern Syria, telling a Chinese TV station that all foreign troops on Syrian soil without invitation or consultation with the Syrian government are considered invasion or invaders. Assad scoffed at U.S. troops' presence, saying, They didn't succeed anywhere they sent troops. They only create a mess. They are very good in creating problems and destroying, but they are very bad in finding solutions. Now, if that shouldn't be the quote of the year, I don't know what should be, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, it is absolutely pathetic that the world at large knows what we are. That the world at large knows exactly why at the top of an American standard is a gold eagle. Everybody knows but the Americans. And it completely blows me away how the American people just, they don't care about anything. I mean, uh, my wife and, and, and Brian were talking earlier, and, and you know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I said what I had to say. I put it plainly. I told them both. I think the only thing that would really rile up the American people to do something would be if they were to cancel the Super Bowl. Because, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is from the Huffington Post. It was released on the 6th. What do millions of dead fish mean for our planet? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure that they don't have any quote in here from Assad, but I'm sure he could make a better appraisal of the situation than Americans. Because they just don't flat care. Uh, the air was pugnant as I neared the Shincock Inlet, a majesty length of water connecting the Atlantic Ocean and the Peconic Bay in eastern tip of Long Island. Down on the Ricky Steps, the black deck of a defunct beach club garnered a pitiful sight of hundreds of wide-eyed silver bunker fish. 
immobile but swirling atop a graveyard of fish sunk below the surface. Breathtakingly eerie, at once beautiful and horrifying, the scene was a fraction of what residents awoke to days prior on November the 14th, 2016. Known as a fish kill, this particular event was not caused by pollutants in the water, though residents immediately feared it might be. An earlier fish kill in the month on the same river had been caused by poor water conditions. Ladies and gentlemen, poor water conditions. What I'm about to read is not poor water conditions. In 2015, three fish kills left hundreds of thousands of bunkers dead between the river in Riverhead and Reeves Bay in Flounders, an area with chronically low dissolved oxygen and increased nitrogen. Ladies and gentlemen, here we have it again. They want to tell you, but then they don't want to tell you. This is multiple fish kills that I've looked at from local resources that say the same thing. Yeah, we checked the water, and there wasn't enough oxygen in it. I will continue on. The most recent fish kill is widely believed to be the result of bunkers chased by natural predators, bluefish and striped bass, into the canal. The locks are set to close at certain times, depending on the tides, and Monday's supermoon contributed to bad timing all around. Ladies and gentlemen, something is extremely wrong. I don't mean just a little bit. Something is seriously wrong. Here is a, another one uh, from the very next day. Uh, this is taken from uh, CBC News. Disease ruled out at fish farm site with higher than expected deaths. Yes, um, I would certainly, looking at this, call this higher than expected. It's just absolutely phenomenal how even though they will publish this article, they try to downplay it as the fishermen get more and more and more nervous. No disease was detected in the salmon sampled at the damaged fish farm in Shelbourne Harbor, but the province says the site experienced a higher than expected rate of mortality. The site was damaged last month during a winter storm. On February 15th, Cook Aquaculture reported the damage in the province. Two days later, it was reported possible escapes by some of the salmon. During an interview Monday, fisheries... Uh, Minister Keith Colwell said the fish deaths were strictly from the storm, nothing else. He left it to the company to detail the scale of the mortality. La ladies and gentlemen, let me explain something to the world at large. 
Fish don't die in storms. Did you know out of all the hurricanes that happen on a yearly basis, no fish ever die? So the just <clears throat> the audacity of everything said here is just absolutely off the charts. Uh, It's just off the charts. I I will cover one more uh, before I push Brian to give me a break here. But, ladies and gentlemen, I think it was last week that I discussed with everybody, since when do birds get cholera? Now, cows get tuberculosis, I guess. Harding County, South Dakota. A ranch is under quarantine after three cows originating there were found to be infected with bovine tuberculosis. All fence line neighbors are under quarantine at this time, too. South Dakota State Veterinarian. Uh, Dr. Dustin Ovdekin told approximately 10,000 head of cattle are quarantined, he said. Neighboring ranchers will be out of quarantine if and when their herds test clean, he said. He doesn't know at this time when the affected herd might be out of quarantine. Every bovine animal in the affected herd has been tested, with some animals being euthanized and Necroposized at the State Diagnostic Laboratory in Brookings. So, ladies and gentlemen, alarms just keep going off with me. Just, just screaming uh, to me because, ladies and gentlemen, seriously. Have you ever heard of avian cholera or bovine tuberculosis? And yet we have outbreaks within the same week? We also need to keep our eyes on this. Let me cover one more while it's got my attention. Wildfires in four states kill six. Force thousands from homes. Uh, this has just been off the chart so far, but uh, this article uh, was released in the San Francisco Chronicle on the 7th. Hutchinson, Kansas. Crews grappling with vexing wildfires that have charred hundreds of square miles of land in four states and killed six people soon may get a bit of a break. Winds forecast to ease from the gusts that whipped the flames. Bill Bunting, forecast operations chief of the Oklahoma-based Storm Prediction Center, said Tuesday the powerful wind gusts that fanned the wildfires in Kansas, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Texas would diminish to about 10 to 20 miles per hour on Wednesday. He said temperatures should top the 70s with afternoon humidity low. These conditions will make it somewhat easier for firefighting efforts, but far from perfect. The fires 
still will be moving, Bunting told Associated Press. The ideal situation is that it would turn cold and rain, and unfortunately, that's not going to happen. Skipping down a little bit in the article, Kansas wildfires have burned 625 square miles of land and killed one person. So that's just in Kansas. It's had 725 square miles. So they're not wanting to shed light on the entirety of these damages, but dropping down a little bit further in the article, it says in Oklahoma, it burned 390 square miles. Now, that was just in Beaver County. Officials said that the blaze scorched more than 155 square miles in neighboring Harper County, Oklahoma. So, you see, ladies and gentlemen, they are not wanting you to know how many square miles has been torched. And we're just getting started. We are just getting started. It just seems like to me that everything is just going topsy-turvy in the news as far as I'm concerned. Brian, why don't you jump in here and give me a break? I've been going at it for 30 minutes now. <clears throat> That's going to be going back in and repeating some of your first uh, themes here because we had uh, civil unrest breaking loose, uh, let's see, early this morning. There were protests that broke out in Naples. see here. Um, yep, riot police move against Naples protest in Northern League. We've got protest in Macedonia. Let's see here. Dutch riot police break up Turkish protest in Rotterdam. And not to mention on top of it, like Matthew had pointed out earlier, Last weekend, we had, uh, quote-unquote, pro-Trump forces go to the street. And, of course, well, chaos broke out across actually a multitude of places. And I had only come across one news site, which so happened to be out of Israel, that covered them all. It was not just a small outbreak like they tried to play it off in our media. It went ballistic across the nation. And... Furthering on top of that, we had more immigration laws, a re-initializing of the immigration law go into effect early here this week. But folks, you need to take note of something. And I was rather shocked that nobody even pointed this out as it is. And I finally saw somebody catch it when it happened again this week. Now, before we had those seven nations listed, this time around they removed Iraq from that list. But you have to take note of the rest of the other nations listed there because they are all nations that we are dropping bombs on as we currently speak. And nobody else with the exception of Iran. And I hate to break it to you folks, but that sends a pretty clear cut message to Iran when you have the rest of those nations that are listed, all being ones that we are engaged in military conflict with. 
And then all of a sudden they throw Iran onto the list as well. Not sending out a good message. Now, the situation within Turkey has been just unbelievable throughout the course of this last week here. Now, inside of Syria, we've had other issues, and that was one of the purposes behind the uh, troop deployments that Matthew spoke of earlier with the uh, Assad story breaking where he stated you're illegally occupying, which, duh, they are. But what they have done there is they've set up a buffer zone for the Kurdish forces that are fighting against the Islamic State in Syria, and they've set up this um, basically safe zone for the Kurdish people with Russia at the same time. Now, mind you, on top of it, do not forget that Turkey is also a NATO member. So when you have the United States being a NATO member, go against Turkey, a NATO member, to block them from their moves with Operation Euphrates and all of that that started up a while ago with with attacks against the Kurdish people who they've been having nonstop um, incidents break loose all over the place throughout Turkey. This alone begins a very volatile situation that once again is going to boil over, but Considering on top of it everything else that's going on in Turkey, ever since the attempted Gulen coup, Erdogan has been making continual moves to amass more power. And that's all of these major um, – uh, what would you call it? <laughs> Sorry, my mind just kind of blanked out there. With all this division essentially throughout the European nations – that is going on is due to the fact that there's Turkish meetings that are taking place because you have multiple people from different Turkish populations spread throughout the different European nations, and he's gathering more of these people to support his moves for these new constitutional laws that are being written. And the further he goes along, he's going to be amassing more and more and more power here, and it's going absolutely unchecked. Now, it's not helping matters on top of it that within some of these European nations, we've also got nationalists or far-right, alt-right nationalists, and Erdogan has been using the terminology Nazis over and over and over again, which is not making people happy. And at the same time, we've been kind of pointing out the same thing with the white writer, with the rise of nationalism, with neo-Nazism, That's exactly what we're seeing take place here. But using that terminology, pointing at Germany, pointing at the Netherlands, for instance, because as I pointed out, we had uh, protests that have broke out within uh, the Netherlands here. And that's due to the fact that they blocked one of the uh, Turkish PMs from even landing there. So this whole thing is escalating something fierce. Hand-in-hand with that, this week, we had meetings back-to-back. Netanyahu met with Putin in Russia this week, and then the very next day, Erdogan met with Putin in Russia this week. Let's see here. What else do we have? Well, it turns out we're not done in Afghanistan, folks, as we're deploying more troops on the ground there as well. Hmm. We had a big uh, Kurdistan 
oil deal that went through in the last week here. Gunman attacked a uh, military airport in eastern Afghanistan. Let's see here. The humanitarian crisis, 20 million at risk of famine and starvation. And as we speak, folks, they've been having massive repercussions in Sudan and Somalia, not to even mention Yemen, uh, with massive famine outbreaks. Now, Folks, all three of those nations I just listed, we are bombing. Does that not bother anybody? We have massive famine breaking out in these areas. People are dying right and left because of this, and we're dropping bombs on them at the very same time. I guess I'll let you step back in here a minute, Matthew, because now I need to catch my breath. It's just off the charts, Brian. Did did anybody understand what he just said? I I mean, this plays back to what Brian and I talked about months ago. Why are we targeting hospitals? Oh, for the love of biscuits. Why are we targeting Pakistani weddings? So, let me get this right. Understand who normally is sent in for relief. That's the Red Cross. Right? Everybody knows that. The Red Cross. I wonder why no Red Cross spokesmen have been interviewed. Um, as they're bringing in supplies and relief efforts, are they having to dodge the uh, American-made bombs or what? No, no, really. I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be liberal here, or anti-war, or whatever you call it, because I don't think there's a term for it. I, I really don't think there's a term for what is transpiring anymore. But this much I do know. The children of Israel clamored for a king. And oh my goodness, did I see all kinds of clamoring for this present POTUS. But you better mark one thing and mark it well. The Lord their God gave them a king and shoved him down their throats. That's a fact. Let me talk about some pretty prophetic uh, things that just happen to be at the right place at the right time. On February the 8th, I published The Riddle of the Day on Facebook. What was the image of jealousy? Goes on to a discourse that's described there in Ezekiel chapter uh, 8. And 10 days ago, I did a broadcast on this called the image of jealousy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, 
Let me read to you this article from Reuters. On Women's Day Eve, a statue of a girl stares down the Wall Street bull. Wednesday, March the 8th, 2017. New York. As many American women prepare to draw attention to their role in the workplace, a Wall Street firm on Tuesday set up a statue of a girl in front of Lower Manhattan's well-known bronze-charging bull, as if to fearlessly stare it down. Placing the diminutive grade school-aged girl in front of the massive bull on the eve of International Women's Day was a way of calling attention to the lack of gender diversity on corporate boards and the pay gap of women working in financial services, a spokeswoman said for the State Street Global Advisor said. Ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about this article. Ominous sounding, the Omaha Titanic syndrome is forming in the stock market. Now let me just take a second and describe to you what that is. The Titanic syndrome was created in 1965 by the late Bill Omaha. It gives a preliminary sell signal any time that the number of 52-week new lows exceeds new highs on the New York Stock Exchange within seven trading days before or after a major market high. A warning sign is flashing on Wall Street and highlighting growing uneasiness among investors that the stock market rally inspired by President Donald Trump's pro-business policies may be starting to unwind. Over the past three sessions, starting Monday, which tells you what? That's right. It brought us right to Wednesday when they placed this statue up in front of the idol of jealousy. Starting on Monday, the number of New York Stock Exchange traded stocks hitting 52-week lows exceeded those that hit 52-week highs for the first time since early November indicating a pause in the run-up in equities that has resulted in a parade of all-time highs for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't good because everybody who knows anything about the earnings report knows that it's absolutely complete fiction. We're definitely in la-la land. just amazes me that now I need to go back to that Spreaker episode and update the picture that I uploaded for that particular episode. But ladies and gentlemen, if you want to find us, you can find us, of course, on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, we do Spreaker. We do TalkShoe. Uh, we, of course, do this. Uh, we've also got some new things uh, sizzling on the back burner tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to have a private conversation with uh, another individual uh, that is not going to be disclosed at this time. Uh, he wants to get together and do some prophetic things, so we may do that as well. I am hoping uh, to get uh, WI2C Radio up and running, covering what is to come. Uh, 
I have as yet to find a co-host for that. Just jumping in the saddle whenever we can and posting uh, just comprehensive discussions about what is actually going to happen in the future according to the Bible, God's holy word. <coughs> Excuse me. I am uh, running off of a three-week about with the flu. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have serious concerns arising uh, in the financial sectors. Uh, you know, Brian and I have mentioned it before that we've got this debt ceiling that's looming. It is coming. And it amazes me how the general population don't understand what's going to happen when that debt when that debt ceiling comes, because they've got no choice but to raise the debt ceiling. Ladies and gentlemen, there is absolutely no options involved. I mean, if they don't raise it, the government will stop. It, it will stop altogether. So it just amazes me that, ladies and gentlemen, there's no way to pay this down in the first place. No way to pay it down. It, 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 it amazes me that people just cannot put two and two together. And there's just well, I don't want to spend too much time on the finances because we've got other concerns. Um, more with livestock of a sort. Orangutan's mysterious death sparks fear about greater threat to humans and animals. This was published on March the 9th in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You'll take note. This is a far cry from being out in the national media. Very lucky to have stumbled across this article uh, that comes out of Milwaukee. On a frigid night, a few days after Christmas 2012, Trish Khan dove back to the Milwaukee County Zoo to check on the star attraction, a playful, widely popular five-year-old orangutan named Maul. It was almost 11 p.m. Khan, the zoo's primary orangutan keeper, was off on medical leave. Yet she'd come in earlier in the day as soon as she heard something was wrong with Maal. Raised on a horse farm in Wisconsin, Khan was passion for animals, especially primates, and mostly, especially orangutans. A great ape found in Asian rainforests and admired for its intelligence. Even so, her deep affection for Maya was unique. She had flown to Colorado to pick him up from the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo after the orangutan had been rejected by its mother. Khan had accomplished Maya to Milwaukee, and when he settled in at the country zoo, she bottle-fed him for the first year. When Maya was sick, she would move the mattress into an enclosure and stay with him, allowing him to rest beside her and sleep until morning. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I can continue on with this diatribe. And it sure does provoke uh, a tear-jerk response from the ladies. But this orangutan uh, is sick. And the close biological relationship between uh, the two species uh, take another form as well. Ebola and HIV have jumped from apes to humans. Others, such as influenza and polio, have gone the opposite route, passing from humans to apes. When you're dealing with great apes, says Khan, pretty much anything they get, we can get. Now, it just blows me away, ladies and gentlemen, how they just come right out here in this article and told you the truth. So, when this orangutan got sick, it has them extremely worried. But this is a theme, it seems like over the past three weeks now, we're really getting full barrel in the chest. First avian cholera, now bovine tuberculosis, and now this orangutan that's turned sick has them extremely worried. So, this is seriously ramping up, which is one of the reasons why over the past week I've spent a whole lot of time doing uh, visual aids. I've posted them to uh, Twitter. If you all get a chance, I suggest you take a serious look at them. Uh, This was published... Uh, March the 8th, bald eagles keep dying, and no one is talking about it. They cannot even open their beaks. When a bald eagle was brought to a wildlife rehabilitation center last month, it was paralyzed and could not even hold its head up. People had to carry the motionless bird. Its head rested on its wing. Rescuers rushed to cleanse its blood of poison that was slowly strangling the life out of him. This happens to bald eagles all the time, said Lynn Tompkins, executive director of Blue Mountain Wildlife Rehabilitation and Education Center in Oregon, who has been trying to save them for 30 years. His head was upside down when we got him, Tompkins told the dodo. Lead affects the nerves, so that's your brain, your use of muscles, all parts of the body. The birds often cannot stand. They usually have difficulty breathing. They cannot even open their beaks. The lead gets into the bodies of the bald eagles as well as owls and other kind of raptors after they've eaten dead animals shot by hunters who use lead bullets. Raptors are quite willing to be scavengers, so they scavenge. She said, they eat things that have been shot. Lead ammunition is the biggest source. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, 
I just want to say this. The only way birds of prey to get that much of a contamination from lead is they would have had to have eaten the shot itself. It's the only way they could have gotten this sick. But as you continue to read the article, they want you to think that this pile of carcasses that has been turning up is from illegal hunting of other birds that hunters shoot and leave lie on the ground. And it's just amazing to me uh, that people refuse to put two and two together. We just had that massive owl kill uh, in Idaho. And they're completely clueless. They said that they starved to death all at the same time. Ladies and gentlemen, something is terribly, terribly wrong. I'll cover one more uh, political one before we get off into the break. This is very serious. This is going to eventually explode. This was uh, just amazing to me to find in Ynet News. Iran accuses Israel of hiring assassins to take out nuclear scientists. Iranian representative at the International Atomic Energy Agency describes Israel as a threat to the entire Middle East, claims it targeted Iranian experts, and criticized Israel for not joining the Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. This is a quote. While nuclear scientists all across the Middle East have been assassinated by the terrorists hired by this regime, the nuclear experts of this regime have access to nuclear facilities of some countries in the region. The Iranian representative also criticized Israel for repeatedly ignoring international calls to join the Global Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. Unfortunately, the Zionist regime has ignored the rightful request of the international community in the last years, and having the blind support of some Western countries and with infringing all international laws and regulations has pushed its dangerous military nuclear program forward. Over the past few years, Israel has occasionally been accused of ordering the assassinations of several scientists working on Iran's nuclear program. Ladies and gentlemen, they have been assassinating uh, nuclear scientists for a very long time. One reminds me of when, uh, before I married my wife, we were in an institution of higher learning, and uh, they had just murdered uh, that one Iraqi uh, as they were building the largest, and I do mean the largest artillery piece in the world. It was going to be underground, and it was going to be capable of delivering an artillery round to Jerusalem. What did the Mossad do? They blew his head off. Everybody knows this. 
This is common knowledge in the Middle East. And everybody knows what's going to happen if and when Israel don't have nukes. They will immediately attack them just like they did in you know, 1967, 1973. Everybody knows exactly what's happened, but guess what? Now they have German-built Dolphin-class attack submarines with no less than 10 forward-firing torpedo tubes that can launch simultaneously 10 atomically-tipped Tomahawk cruise missiles. That's what they have now. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, off the charts as they're trying to drag this out in the open when everybody knows the whole purpose of the Iranian quids force. You, you, you all have been taught by me and Brian why it's called quids force. They're special forces. Its sole purpose is the destruction of Jerusalem. That's why it's called quids force. So, absolutely blowing me away. Brian, uh, before you take a break, why don't you jump on here and give your comments on that, I guess. Um, I see you sending me some Skypes. So, let me check that out and speak your mind about this, uh, what's going on, Brian. Well, as you can see, I've been working on some other things here in the background, and oh boy, there's one thing that hit me earlier this morning. I think what I want to touch on is some things that you brought up on uh, further projects here coming into the future. Um, Matthew and I had a discussion about this last night, and this uh, time and time and time again has been a major problem, which I have seen as far as those teaching within the... uh, realms of eschatology is having the wrong people in the wrong places being the uh, quote-unquote major power players for end times. Now, we all know the infamous uh, the infamous Gog and Magog being Russia because they decided to take the word for Rosh, which is essentially head, and turn that into Russia. That, that's just one primary tiny little Part of this equation, but we've got time and time and time again, we've got the wrong key players in the wrong places, not to even mention sometimes our history has become very, very messed up along the way, and that's leading to even more confusion. So this is something that we've slowly have gone through and have tried to correct some misinterpretations of these things, but there's going to be a bit of a major... um, clean up in the process of trying to resort out and get the proper players in their place as we move forward here as well. Because when we have these incorrect locations, these incorrect uh, people groups, we're looking at the wrong places. When we do this, this is going to lead to an extraneous amount of issues. Now, I, folks, I bring up Turkey time and time and time and time again, and there's a reason for that. Um, For any of you that have uh, watched our programs on the Kings of the East, when we dealt with uh, Attila the Hun, we pointed out 
to everybody that Turkey is also known as Togmarah in the Bible, where a lot of people have mislabeled that. And yes, they're a part of the key players within the Gog and Magog conflict, but due to the fact that we had Gyges of Lydia being one of the, um, the chief historical figures where people think that the uh, character of Gog was based off of, they've automatically thrown you know, Turkey into being Gog. But we basically, like I just stated, that's not the case. Turkey is Togmarad. They are part of the key players. Now, I've spoken before in a tiny um, two minutes before a show ended about um, Magog and that being associated with the Magar, who were descendants of the ancient Huns. So, you know, this is... um, This has been a bit of an extensive project that I've been working on here for quite some time. All the while, you know, throughout the last couple of weeks here, I've been juggling multiple things um, on the back burner as is. I'm trying to go through the last uh, 20 or so years since, um, well, I guess now it's moving into 37 years here since the, uh, or no, I take that back. It was believe around the 90s that that took place. But since the uh, fall of the Soviet Republic, the Soviet Union, and moving forward into Russia, I've been trying to, you know, look at that situation and see how it applies now with what's going on with this current administration. What, uh, you know, Matthew asked me that interesting question last week, well, how does this pertain militarily if it isn't found, indeed found that there's been Russian influence in this last election and so forth, and I didn't exactly like the answer I gave last week because I felt it was much more extensive than that, and I needed to know a lot more about what's been taking place in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. So I've had that I've been working on. Um, Hand in hand with that, I've been working on a project that's been something that almost that I've kept pretty much covered up and hidden for a long time, but this concerns the ancient Zhang of Tibet and their connections with the ancient Assyrian, which is going to be rather mind-boggling when we blow the lid off of that one. And now within this last week, after a rather strange turn of events, which we will cover after the break, I've been going through and looking at ancient Macedonian history again, and it's Rather good that I sat down and did what I did because a lot has turned up in this last couple of days concerning their ancient history that has been swept under the rug. Once again, we had the wrong key player associated with the wrong people group, and that seems to be an atypical tendency. And it's always interesting going back to the table and looking at the newest historical documentation coming forward from certain parts of the world to get a better handle on this. Get a better handle on it. I like how you describe that. You know, ladies and gentlemen, when we do that, what Brian just referenced, I'm going to play a clip of the original conversation. I listened to it again this morning, and I didn't like what I had to say because God does not do this with me. But concerning this one issue that Brian's working on, 
I have it on audio recorded because I was confounded because I asked Brian a very simple question. Brian shows me the article, so I got the information before it was delivered to me in the Bible source code. This has never happened before. Not ever. I've always read it in the Bible, and then went and found it in the history books. But you all need to consider this. That white stone that we are to receive in the book of Revelation, the one that has the name upon it that only you and he knows, Oh, ladies and gentlemen, this rabbit hole might go a whole lot deeper than what you think it does. And it's time for me to bring this out, kicking and screaming into the light. When I was 12 years old, I wasn't even two weeks past 12 years old. And Brother Webster came to me at church, and he said it was time for me to debunk the Adams-Clark commentary on the book of Daniel. I had no idea what he meant. But this is what Adam Clark wrote in his commentary on Daniel the 8th chapter in verse 14. Unto 2,300 days, though literally it will be 2,300 evenings and morning, yet I think the prophetic day should be understood here as in other parts of this prophet, and must signify so many years. If we date these years from the vision of the he-goat, Alexander's invading Asia, this was a M3670, or B.C. 334. 2,300 years from that time, will reach A.D. 1966. For 141 years from the present, A.D. 1825, this will bring it near to the time mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. See the note there. Of course, Adam Clark failed to add the zero year. When I saw this, I was like, oh my goodness, that was of course the beginning of the blood moon jubilee that occurred, that's right ladies and gentlemen, that's right, the 1967, Adam Clark had failed to add the zero year, he was one year off, let me say this again, this commentary was written in 1831, now, the only thing that you really need to know past this is the simple fact as to why uh, people do not want this known. Nobody liked Adam Clark. Because he did not preach once saved, always sin. That's why they didn't like him. 
However, with this in mind, you have to understand that it was rejected for such marvelous reasons. Yet one stroke of the pen. But Brian's got a whole lot more information than that to cover. I just wanted to wet your tongue a little bit before the break. Ladies and gentlemen, eight ways to Sunday. This is coming down the barrel. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, in honor of Purim, let's take a Maccabee break. I'll tell a tale, 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 tale yeah. of Maccabees in Israel, L, 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 yeah. When the Greeks tried to assail, sell, 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 yeah. but it was all to no avail, fail, 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 yeah, yeah. The war went on and on and on until the mighty Greeks were gone, yeah. I put my lockers in the air sometimes, saying it. Yeah. 
tale so grand Shushan is the place where it all began The hidden miracle One man, second in command Play all the Jews with his wicked plan A scheme so miserable He chose a day for the disaster It's ironic what came after He didn't know a girl named Esther Would turn it upside down She wore the royal crown Three days the Jews just prayed She left her with the life once to save the day She could come undown The streets were filled with celebration Everyone ate lamentation Jubilation for the nation Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the End Time Tribune as we storm forward here. Uh, but Brian has got a lot to uh, talk about. 
these sequences of days and years and what is going on on the ground, what the Bible has to say uh, about the identities, as he discussed earlier. But ladies and gentlemen, if you want to really get into the meat and potatoes of the Scripture, I suggest you hook up with us on Facebook and or Twitter, because this week I've posted another riddle uh, that everybody's been taking a look at. This is it. Why is the 1,290 equation found in Joshua chapter 22 seven times utilizing the standard measure of count? Will this altar of rebellion be significant during the 1,290 days of the first half of the tribulation? Now, within this, I also bring up the simple fact that the Septuagint also contains it eight times in that single chapter. This altar of rebellion is important concerning your ability to perceive Karal's rebellion. Now, along those lines, on uh, Twitter this week, I posted some visual aids that I strongly suggest uh, all of you go take a look at if you can. Because there, several times, where not only the 1,290-day count is referenced in the Bible source code, but it is encoded with the integer 797. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the divine proportion. That is 1.618, the golden ratio. Now, I've not included all of those, but I will read to you this one right here. Jeremiah 37, verse 14, and the divine proportion of the 1,290-day sacula. Here, you'll take note that Jeremiah says that he has not fallen away to the Chaldeans and has not hearkened to them. That series of Hebrew words is also integers because there was never Arabic numerals in God's word. So that sequence is 121, 160, 100, 379, 37, 410, 47, and 796. That phrase is the golden ratio. It's the divine proportion. At the bottom of it, I put this. Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13, will be executed by the Assyrian false prophet. He will use this to separate the wise from the foolish. It is coming. Now, that's just one of the pictures that I posted. And I could have posted many, 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 many more concerning the divine ratio. And the 1,290-day sequence. So what Brian has to discuss, you need to listen. Now, I shared that little bit from the Adam Clark commentary right before the break. And I even told you why this has been buried underneath the rug, because Adam Clark, of course, preached holiness. 
and this generation hates him for it. So, Brian, why don't you uh, talk about this area in question? And, ladies and gentlemen, consider this. Adam Clark knew exactly what to say concerning the he-goat and the rise of Alexander invading Asia. We need to take a look at that area to see what the Bible, God's holy word, really has to say about it. Because sometimes it doesn't say what you like. It doesn't say what you want it to say. It gives you the facts. And you just have to deal with it. You just have to swallow it. Now take note. The Bible source code is both the Hebrew and the Greek. Ladies and gentlemen, I know this is going to come to a shock to you. But you do need to understand that half of the church on this planet uses the Septuagint for the Old Testament. I'm not lying to you. Half of them. You're just part of the half that doesn't. Ladies and gentlemen, do you not even understand that somebody just sent me uh, a link uh, to a YouTube video, uh, somebody I've been on the air with before, and his dissertation on the Emmanuel Prophecy. I only watched very few short minutes of it because he immediately started talking about the Oma in the Hebrew. There's only one massive problem with that, ladies and gentlemen. It's common knowledge that the Emmanuel prophecy mentioned in the New Testament, that's directly quoted from the Septuagint. So talking about the usage of the Hebrew word for Oma concerning a virgin or not is absolutely irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Now, the word that is directly referenced there is of massive importance. No mistakes about it. If you don't know where that goes, you have no idea why it's referenced where it's referenced at. So it's important that you know that if you're looking at the Emmanuel prophecy on this side of the equation for the Hebrew, you're not going to understand what God was doing, especially with the very next chapter, because it's actually two chapters. It's Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. So take a deep breath. I will as well. Because Brian has not discussed this with me beforehand, so as it's coming out of Brian's mouth, I'm going to learn a little bit too. And what a beautiful thing. Brian, jump in the saddle. Um, let's talk about this a little bit, shall we? Well, I mean, maybe we should start there from uh, Daniel 8, because as Matthew brought up, 2,300 day integer and as I had pointed out folks 2000 
and 300 years from the death of Alexander the Great in 323 to 322 BC deadpans us on what? 2022. And when you read Daniel and cast out the commentaries and the rubbish and the garbage that people have tried to interject. In the meantime, because they tried to tell you something tricksy concerning the four horns that come up and then the little horn as they tried to somehow allot this into their quote-unquote historical understanding where they tried to deadpan this in the 1800s, which makes absolutely zero sense. So let's start here at the beginning of Daniel 8, and we'll stop where the 2,300 days come up. Because, folks, it's right there in broad daylight what it's stating. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that, which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision... And I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other. Okay, folks, what are those two horns? Okay, the Median Empire and obviously the higher horn went to the Persian Empires. As we brought up before at the beginning, when Cyrus the Great had come into Babylon... The Medes and the Persians were co-reigning. We covered this in a kingdom divided against itself on the Bands of Time YouTube channel. And the title makes all sorts of sense. And we're going to have to touch on that here when we move forward to current Iran to see what's at play here. Let me see, where was I at here? The higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward, and southward. Notice we don't have it going to the east, folks. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram of two horns, which I had been standing, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Now, we're going to stop here and cover two little tiny things here that are of mass importance, historically speaking, and modern day events are echoing and mirroring Mirroring this very same thing. Now concerning the Medes, concerning where Alexander the Great slammed into the last of the Persian kings, who was Darius the Third, 
if you look in the historical documentation, you will find out that the very place from where the Mosul Offensive to take back the Islamic State held territories is one and the same. They're located, the Kurdish people are located in Erbil, Iraq, and this is where that offensive launched from. The very same place that is noted in the historical references where this took place a little ways outside of Erbil, Iraq, is the very same place that the offensive has been launched from. Now, what's peculiar in this offensive against Mosul, if you've been paying attention to the chief groups inside of Iraq who have been included within this, it is mainly the Shiite forces who hold basically alliances to Iran and the Kurdish people who are the ancient Medes. So you've got these two horns working hand in hand to remove the Islamic State out of Mosul. A little too coincidental, the four horns that come up. Well, what happened historically speaking is this was known as the Diadachi. These were the four leaders that rose up as Alexander the Great's empire was divided because he left no heir to basically rule over his empire after the fact. And that goes into a whole long stretch of historical documentation. So your little commentaries that are trying to tell you that this is the Roman Empire and the little horn, the conspicuous horn on top of it, deals with the Roman Empire, folks, give me a break. I mean, in the same breath, they're going to try to tell you that the temple was rebuilt at the time of Darius I, and if you spent any time going through Nehemiah and Ezra, you would realize in a split second, there's no way that's possible that the temple could have been finished at the time of Darius I, but nobody looks, so they get away with it. All right, now we covered all that as fast as I could. And down here into verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, towards the east, and towards a glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, folks, I'm sorry, but the Roman Empire, do you recall them trampling down the stars and the host of the ground? I don't. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper then i heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke for how long is a vision concerning the regular burnt offerings the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled under foot and he said to me 2300 evenings mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So folks, it's quite plain that the Assyrian has to go into action. 
We have to see the events of Revelation 6, Revelation 12, Isaiah 21. I can go for days here listing biblical verses and references of what has to transpire before this 2300 evenings and mornings comes to its full completion. Now, as Matthew would point out, we have integers within integers. We have a literal 2300 days, and we can also break this down, as I have shown, where we bring it into 2022-2023 as the finality of this process. You've got two separate calculations you can look at here. Now let's take a look at another aspect. This is something that hit me earlier today as I was working through ancient Macedonian history. Now, as I brought up, we had the downfall of the Persian Empire came about at the time of Darius III. Now, if you had listened to or watched our program on a kingdom divided against itself, you would know what I'm basically about to give a review on here real quickly is that the fact that Darius the Great seized the throne from Cyrus the Great, therefore putting an end to what was known as the Persian Empire and setting up the Achaemenid Empire. And that essentially was a new phase there after he seized that throne. That is where we start our count. Now, what happened in Iran? We had the Iranian Revolution, and they did what at that time? They set up presidents to rule from there on out. So if we count from Darius the Great and we take it down to Darius three, we have exactly 10 leaders total going up to Darius three by the time that we have Alexander the Great come in and topple that empire completely. Now, let's go over and actually I'm going to point out one more thing before we get there. You'll also take note that we had two leaders that were very short in their time frame. As a matter of fact, Xerxes II stands out the most because he was only in power for what? Days. Next, we had Sogdianus, who went from after that point in 424 B.C. to 423 B.C. It was only a tiny interim that these two leaders were in power. Now, let's go over and look at the list of the Iranian presidents since the time that they reestablished their new governing system, which the first president took office in 4 February of 1980. Now, apparently it looks like he was only in for a short period of time as well. He was impeached. Then we had an interim leader here. And then we had another interim leader after the second president who was assassinated, mind you. This is looking all kinds of Oh, my goodness. The similarities between the ancient Achaemenid Empire and this one are starting to get even more astonishing. Nonetheless, in totality, with these two interim presidents in place, the one from being in place after he was impeached and the next one assassinated, that adds in two leaders. So that takes us to a total of nine. The next election in Iran is in August of 2017 that will bring us to exactly 10 leaders in Iran since the overthrow and setting up of the new government. Now, this is a little bit too coincidental, quote-unquote, to be coincidence, folks. This is getting a little bit alarming at this point. 
let Matthew come in now to comment on that part before we go into the next section. Well, Brian, you know, you made reference to trampling down the host of heaven there. And it pushes me to do this, ladies and gentlemen. I published an article, uh, Planet X and Bible Prophecy on the Prophetico. Uh, I unpublished it. But let me just say this, ladies and gentlemen, that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, You know that it says that from the time of the change, the daily sacrifice, when the abomination of desolation shall be set up, there will be 1,290 days. The Septuagint there, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't say what you want it to say because there, for change, it uses the word parallax. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the sacrifices mentioned there is only one type of sacrifice that Daniel is detailing there. It is the sacrifice performed in the evening and the morning, when, of course, they would mark off the evening and morning stars. Excuse me, let me cough. <coughs> With that in mind, Brian is quite correct in saying that, no, sorry, nobody's ever had this power. So I want to remind everybody that this is not only giving you one data set. Brian has told you that it happened then with Alexander the Great… And it must happen again, but in its grandiose final form, it's referencing something that NASA has already proved to have taken place. No one understand this, ladies and gentlemen. It is a mathematical certainty. The Nice model proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that the twins... Now, ladies and gentlemen... All astronomers know who the twins are. They all know it. It's Neptune and Uranus. The Nice model proves they should be mathematically switched. They're in the wrong place. No one understand this, that as Brian talks about this, this is the same exact prophetic events which happened with Judah and Tamar. You all know that one of the babies stuck its hands out, got a scarlet cord tied around its wrist, even as you tie a scarlet cord around the neck of a scapegoat. It pulled its hands back in, and the other baby was born first. They switched into womb. And I'm here to tell you that just like Adam Clark only had a hint of the grandiose nature of the Bible, God's holy word, 
I'm here telling you that what Brian's talking about is going to happen in more ways than one, and there's no stopping it. So what happened, exactly what happened in history, needs to be known and understood in order for you to perceive what is to come. Brian sends me a link of the etymology of Greek. I, of course, know what it is. But I wonder if you do. I wonder if you even realize what Alexander was. There's things playing out on the ground right now that is literally falling in the footsteps of what happened then. And the Lord our God is very, very clear concerning how the study of end days is supposed to be done. He is quite clear on the issue. There's not any consternation with what he himself says how the eschatological timeline should be viewed. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which had not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? It is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will be the man who will do come after the king except what has already been done. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 15. That which has been already, and that which has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever existed has already been named. And it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're studying the end times, you need to implement isochronal eschatology, because that's the only thing that works. That's the only thing that's God-ordained. The verses that I just read to you came out of his own mouth, not mine. Back to you. I think I have their attention. Well, in light of 
that tiny portion of what I just spilled out. And yeah, folks, unfortunately, that is but a tiny portion of it because this goes much, much deeper. Now, Matthew and I had a discussion earlier in the week where just out of nowhere, especially after looking over some things that suddenly have broken free in the Balkans or rather broken loose in the Balkans over the course of the last week. I had previous to a mass majority of these events even happening, I told Matthew, we need to keep an eye on the Balkans. I have a strong suspicion that this is the pivot point, that this is the key to events that are going to play out concerning what is to come. And no joke, not even within an hour, a major story was released. See which one this is here. Uh, New Balkan instability rattles the EU. Growing concerns push region to top of block summit agenda. This goes into quite a bit here. You can find this article in the Wall Street Journal. Then a little while after that, NATO, U.S. slapped Kosovo's move to create a national army. Kosovo's signaled on Wednesday it would turn its security forces into a national army and plans opposed by its ethnic Serb minority that drew immediate criticism from NATO and the territory's biggest foreign supporter, the United States. So nearly two decades after the Kosovo War, relations between Belgrade and Pristina remain strained and Serbia continues to regard Kosovo, which declared independence in 2008 as a renegade province and folks i don't know how many people remember the dismantling of yugoslavia that happened back in the 90s and the intensity of that war that took place throughout the balkans with massive massive ethnic genocide was perpetrated on an unbelievable level and the complexities of everything that took place in the balkans was quite literally insane You're looking at the Eastern Corridor of Europe, folks. And one of the key strategies of NATO and the United States to keep Russia at bay has been to keep this area in a state of instability. As they further move forward, they are also trying to bring members of these states into NATO. Now, of course, Russia does not want NATO right on their border in the Balkan territories. And this has been a continual tactic and a continual hotspot since the fall of the Berlin Wall, since the fall of communism. So, you know, right there, we've already got something very alarming going on as is. Now, we brought up last week that Macedonia had suddenly, from out of nowhere, come into the news. And a uh, journalist by the name of, oh boy, I'm probably going to, butcher this poor guy's name, Dr. Marcus Patadopoulos uh, released an article that showed up on RT called the U.S. Plan for Macedonia, keeping Serbia down and Russia out. And that's exactly what I just stated. And he goes into at least a shortened form of all the details concerned on what happened throughout the time of the Balkan Wars and the United States NATO interference in these areas to keep basically Russia 
at bay. And then he goes into a lot more detail concerning what's going on in Macedonia right now as we speak. Now, one of the major things to point out here, folks, is the Albanians. The Albanians are one of the biggest factors right now that is keeping Macedonia in a weakened state as it tries to get this government on its feet right now as we speak. And, oh boy, I'm not even certain of which night it was this week, but I made the decision to say, hey, who are the Albanians and how does this, how does this factor into this equation? And it took me hours to finally get to the bottom of this and thank the Lord for genetic DNA testing because it finally unraveled something that was quite peculiar. Most of the scholars will point you at the fact that the Albanians were tied in with the Illyrian, and some will point that they were tied in with the Thracian. Some will point that they were tied in with the Dacian. So we've got a little bit of a complex mix of people groups going on here, but you go on to later find out that the genetic testing at least showed a very high percentage of Thracian um, genetics of their bloodlines within this people group, but there's still at least a 20, I think it was around 26% um, within that genetic strain, which still leaves the fact that, look, folks, it probably boils down to this. It was probably a mixing of those people groups with the Illyrian, the Thracian, and probably the Dacian. Now, as you make your way through Macedonian history, you come to find out that through the atypical complications of any empire, as you had multiple multiple fronts of war being waged, a political uh, moves going on on top of it, and so forth, there was a lot of tension between what is now today the modern Albanians, um, the Illyrian, the Thracian groups, with Macedonia, they were a constant thorn in their side. And this continued on and on and on. Now that we see this happening with this group of the Albanians doing the same thing with the Macedonians, once again, we've walked into the realm of this not being coincidence. Now, how long this has been going on has probably been extensive because this entire region has been in constant turmoil since time immemorial. And, you know, this even factors into the fact that the catalyst for World War I, all of this began in the Balkans on top of it. So we have another major historical pivot point. Now, I'm trying to uh, think on which points to move into next. Now, folks, some of you that have paid attention to our shows over the years I had pointed to Macedonia probably being one group of people, but this is always something that's been on the back burner and in my mind that I needed to take a closer look at to make sure that indeed they were this group of people that I thought they were. Well, they're not. I had thought that Macedonia was tied in with Amalek, but if you go back and look again as from when the uh, sea people dispersed, after the Hyksos dispersion, because they go hand in hand between the lesser Hyksos and the greater Hyksos, Amalek, you know, according to the work of David Roll and throughout a multitude of his books, which he really brings all of this to light of what I'm talking about now, Amalek itself was considered the lesser Hyksos because they invaded Egypt at the time that the people 
of Israel were leaving Egypt at the time of the Exodus. They stormed in there in a weakened state, set up shop, and took over. And been a great deal of controversy over time as to who the Hyksos are, folks. But if you start using common sense and look at it in that light, you realize that that is the only solution that makes sense. Amalek came in there, took over. Um, in David Roll's terminology, he refers to them as the lesser Hyksos. Then after that, many of the groups, which ended up later forming the nations of Greece, came in and set up shop. And then when they were expelled, they moved out of there and headed in and settled the areas that became Greece in ancient times. And this was a mix of people groups. That's where things get really confusing when you attempt to look at what is being stated as far as Javan or Yavan is concerned in the biblical text. Because the Greek tells you the Hellenes, which if you look, just even look at the mythology concerning Helene, you're going to find out that's made up of multiple people groups to make up the people of Greece, which lines up exactly with the history it always has. But we've been told over the years that Yavan is actually Greece. Well, folks, this is where it gets interesting. As I pointed out previously to backtrack here quick, where did Amalek end up settling? Well, they ended up settling in Boeotia, Thebes. And Thebes, on top of it, had many back-and-forth alliances, adversaries, and so forth with Macedonia. And the history there gets a little complex. Way too much to cover in this program. But nonetheless, that's where Amalek ended up. So who are the Macedonians? This one gets interesting. Remember how I brought up Yvonne? Well, the scholars within Macedonia now that are finally bringing all of this stuff basically to the table for the historians to finally look over as it's been swept under the rug, well, they're tied into the Slavic people. But you'll find out that there's terminology used for the Slavic people that ties to Slovenia, but they break it down and they remove the S-L-O from it and they essentially call them Venia or Veneti and so forth when you're ending up with that last portion of the word for Javon where you have Ven in the equation. So you're getting two different sets of data between the Greek and the Hebrew. They try to tell you in the Hebrew that our, the, the commentaries and all of that try to tell you that that word Yavon goes to Ionia and that means Greece, but folks, Ionia is only a portion of the people of Greece, so that doesn't exactly fall into place. Now, I'm going to take a tiny breather here because that was a lot that I just dumped out, and if any of that needs clarity, Matthew, chime in and get me to bring the clarity. No, what you said is pretty clear. It's just we're uh, down here to the last three minutes of this broadcast. So if we're going to continue further, it'll have to be next week, ladies and gentlemen. But I do want to say this. Something just chilled me to the bone. I do a search for Macedonian. This is what came up today. March the 11th, 2017. I can't believe what I'm looking at. Patriotic protesters blame West for Macedonia's woes. It's the picture that gets my attention because it's got a triumphal arch in it. 
I'll read just a little bit here. The white stone of Scopes Macedonia Square is dizzling in the spring sunshine, but locals remember it well, a very different city by the Vandar River. When I was growing up, much of the center of Scorpe was amongst like fields of unkept parks. I remember stray dogs dragging around bones. Today, he is sitting in a cafe that looks into the towering 48-ton bronze statue of Alexander the Great atop a bearing Barcephalus and the Porta Macedonia, a marble-clad triumphal arch depicting scenes of ancient glory. Ladies and gentlemen, I had no idea this existed, but the Porta Macedonia construction started in 2011 was completed January 2012. It's 21 meters in height and cost of 4.4 million euros. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm down to 90 seconds, right on time and right on target. As I'm looking at this, Brian and I are going to take another look at it. Uh, we will be finishing Brian's discourse uh, next week, make no mistakes about it, because we also have to talk about something else that is tied to this very region. Ah, yes, the sea people. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, God bless, Godspeed. Brian, say your goodbyes, and let's take it out of here. All right, I'm going to add in real quick, folks. I just started a Twitter account. You can find that at Brian Ingram, I-N-G-R-A-M, and then it's got at the Bands of Time, and you can keep up on all of the major news breaking out through the week. And with that said, good night, folks, and God bless.